come up with the theme song for The Office? Oops. We, we just stumbled into The Office. Okay. Uh, um, this is not The Office. It's The Mentors, and welcome back Welcome to back. The, the Mentors. Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And you're listening to a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And this week, oh, we met this guy. We met a man. We met this boy. And we were swooned. He's not a boy. He's in his 50s. But um, awesome, you might have heard. He, he has a boyish charm. He does. Boyish good looks. He's hilarious as well. And we're going to tell you a couple of the stories that we heard from wait, him. Who are we even talking about? Oh, wait. Oh. They probably already read the title of the episode. Yes. It's Dan Porter. You might have heard of companies like OMG Pop that created Draw Something. It was a very popular game years ago. He was one of the early people at the national nonprofit Teach for America. Since then, he's gone on to start other companies. He's worked with people like Richard Branson and Dwayne The Rock Johnson and you name it. He's worked with them. He's just a, a, a tremendous person and personality and I don't know we just learned so much of the conversation that he had with the entrepreneurs that we work with um, that we yeah. wanted to tell you about it exactly yeah. so how do we even meet this guy great question that you didn't ask us that I asked for ourselves but uh, he's a professor at NYU <laughs> yes and he works very closely with the Leslie E Lab, the Entrepreneurship Lab, where Sergey works, and he gives talks there every year, right? Yeah, yeah. By very closely, but he means that he just comes in once a year to talk to our entrepreneurs. He's very, I meant he's very yeah, friendly. With he y'all. is. He's very friendly, and he, but he's also a busy guy. So outside of his own class, he uh, this is how he gives back. He provides value to entrepreneurs that are serious about building things by telling his own story, and it was so inspiring, actually. Yeah, actually, he came in and gave a talk last year, and what the hell was that doing? last year. Oh, I, th- I was in the middle of teaching a class. So I couldn't go, but two weeks ago, Sergey said, hey, Dan's coming in to talk to our students again. Sergey, you should come. <laughs> I don't know my own name. Vadim, you should come this time. And I put it on my calendar and I said, I'll be there. Come hell or high water. Come rain or shine. Come sail away. Come, come sail away. Come sail away with me. And I did. Oh, I went. Man. I sailed away. So I, I did. I showed up. It was five o'clock last Thursday. Thursday? Yes. Friday. Yeah, it was Thursday. Thursday. Yes. And uh, I actually... We have these things called AMAs where we invite people to talk. And, you know, it's actually a really intimate group of people, like 20 or 30 uh, folks in this room that they talk to because they're founders and they want to share their know-how. It's really cool. Dan came in. He sat down in a chair in front of the group. And literally, it was 15 or 20 of us. It was a very small group. And he just said, all right, what do you guys want me to talk about? (laughs) And he told a bunch of stories. And so we're going to tell you a little bit about what he said without you having to pay, you know, however much it is, a couple hundred thousand dollars to get an education at NYU and without you having to be part of this selective accelerator program. Yeah, that's right. We're giving you the benefit free of charge. Well, you know what? There's no such thing as a free lunch. If you could just like maybe tell your friend that you're listening to the show or your mom or your grandma or grandpa or your son, whoever that might be interested in, in inspirational entrepreneurial stories and stories of creators people that make something from nothing that's what we're all about here at the mentors and you know if you help share that just helps us keep the lights we're sitting in the dark right now we are actually it helps us keep the lights on well luckily it's still light outside it's 6 32 on a sunday in new york city but i did turn off the ac for y'all and it's like 108 degrees (laughs) today in the city so we're committed to bringing you the value of this show every week uh, come hell or it feels like hell today or high water does, which i would like to be high on water now <sighs> that's oh, called God, hydration that's just awful and 
you should be hydrated. Your skin will look great. That's true. I'm high on water all the time. True. Same. All right. So let's, uh, go, let's get to Dan. But yeah, let's get to Dan. But again, if you like this episode, share it with one friend or just give us a rating. Tweet or don't it. do anything. Don't do shit. I don't even. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but we would love I'm for not your mom. <laughs> We're not your mom. Uh, but uh, we are your daddies. Yeah. We'll be your daddies. We'll be Got your mentors. Right. Well, is that was that a weird... Does that... Can we... No. I, I don't know if people appreciate us saying we're their daddies. Yeah. Uh, we're not. And uh, we forgot how to be funny, apparently, on the show. But you know what? Me and Sergey are taking an improv class starting next week. We're going to talk about that later. Hopefully, it'll make us funnier. <sighs> okay. Let's get to it. It's so hot. Let's, let's get to Dan. Get the episode We, we got to get this recorded. Right. Okay. So, three main things that you're going to take away in the next 20 to 25 minutes that we learned from Dan. One is how to compete with the big boys. Dan pointed out that you can compete on a lot of different things. Obviously, price is one of them. You don't want to compete on price, then you're creating a cheap product, but we're gonna talk about that. Two, how to make a niche product appeal to a broader market. That's what he did with various of his startups. He's done it several times and he has made hundreds of millions of dollars doing it, so he's an expert. He did. And then the last thing we're going to talk about, of course, is, well, not of course, you didn't know, I didn't say yet, but the importance of relationships. All right, let's get into it. Relationships are a long game. That's really what the takeaway is going to be there, but oh, we'll, we'll tell you. Oh, fine. They don't okay. have to listen. Ah, well, that's it. Okay, so look, I mean, Dan Porter, he's this guy from uh, Brooklyn, New York, grew up wanting to be a teacher. He did become a teacher, um, went to Princeton, I believe, so obviously he was a, a, someone that was smart and got good grades and all of that. And for a long time, he was a teacher. He joined Teach for America as an early uh, employee, ended up rising to president by really creating processes for them that made teaching something that that anybody could do, that uh, appealed to a broader variety of people. They made it sexy. Teach for America, right? Who doesn't want to join sexy. a Who doesn't want to join a two year fellowship to uh, to teach in difficult areas like New Orleans or like uh, inner city, you know, New York? That's what they do, and they made teaching sexy, and they're like an eighty million dollar a year nonprofit now. And and after doing these teaching gigs, he, he decided, you know what, I'm 30 years old and I'm tired of being poor. I was a teacher. I worked for a nonprofit. That's great. You know, I rose through the ranks, but there's only so much money you can make there. And I'm just super tired of being poor. So the first thing that he did is he thought, okay, well, maybe I should go to business school. And he, I think, attended like an info session at a school and just right away, he the way that he said it is he just hated the people he was surrounded by, sort of the business school types, and he decided, no way, no how, that's not for me, first of all. Second of all, I don't want to spend $100,000 on this education. How can I get paid to learn? And he literally got a job. As he said, he lied his way into an investment banking job. I think he was being a little facetious. He's an yeah. incredibly bright man that, had exact, like as Sergey said, had helped grow Teach for America into a massive organization. And so he got into investment banking, and that's how he learned about business is by helping with M&A transactions and getting paid a six-figure salary at an iBank. Yeah, so that you know that gave him the confidence to say, you know what, maybe I don't need a business school education to start a company. This is at the height of the dot-com bubble, if you will, that was just growing and growing in the late 90s, early 2000s, where everybody was building a tech startup. So it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that a guy like him in his early 30s would start a company. So he decided that the industry he was going to get into is the ticketing uh, industry. So right, so venues selling tickets to shows, essentially. Online ticket sales were just starting to be a thing. Ticketmaster was the big player. They still are. And they were basically creating a monopoly. And he decided to build that business. And we're not going to tell you the entire 
entire story of how he built that business because honestly, we don't know. <laughs> but what I do know is this. He focused on a very niche market in San Francisco, right? Only on working with venues in San Francisco. And he asked himself this question, how are we going to compete with someone like Ticketmaster? They're big, they're trying to cater to all the large venues, they're processing basically all of the transactions of tickets online. How the heck are we gonna compete? And one thing to remember that he educated us on in terms of the ticketing business is in America, ticket sales are an exclusive game. In other words, a venue will have an exclusive vendor that will sell tickets for them. And so Ticketmaster, because they were a big growing company and at that point highly capitalized, they would go to Madison Square Garden, they would give him millions of dollars to become an exclusive provider, and then they would charge service fees which is their profit on selling the tickets for that venue. And so it was impossible for a competitor to come in and uh, try to sell tickets on behalf of MSG. Yeah, they literally paid to play. They bought out the venue. So obviously a small startup that was getting into ticket sales could not do that. So he said, okay, we're going to focus not on Madison Square Garden, not on New York City, but just the Bay Area, just San Francisco, and let's focus on ticket sales for smaller venues, up-and-coming artists and we're just gonna own and dominate that so they focused on a niche that Ticketmaster was ignoring because it wasn't very profitable for them but they did something else they sort of pounded their chest and basically played the PR game and kept on writing articles and, and or getting articles published about how they were gonna beat Ticketmaster at their own game and how they're gonna take away customers from them. And just because they pinned themselves against Ticketmaster in the press so much over the course of a couple of years, guess what ended up happening? Pretty soon, Ticketmaster just said, you know what, we're just gonna buy you. <laughs> take yeah. you out of the market. They were basically just a big pain in the ass and using PR to their advantage. Eventually, it turned out when when he was meeting with Ticketmaster talking about the acquisition, the president at the time, he said to him, look, I mean, all you guys ever did was take one customer away from us, but you were so pesky that, you know what, we're gonna acquire you. But they also just completely penetrated that San Francisco market um, over that period of time where for that alone, there was value enough for Ticketmaster to buy them. So the takeaway here is this is one of the things that makes startups attractive. They can be more nimble and they can usually work fast and ignore areas in the market that the competitors aren't going after. So you compete on, again, going after something that's ignored, a different customer segment. But also you can compete on distribution. So for them, they were just trying to get as many of these small venues signed up as possible and they were going after that local geography but that was their competitive advantage against Ticketmaster is uh, just getting as much distribution as possible at that time. All right, so he sells the company to Ticketmaster and he's thinking about his next thing that he's going to be working on and he got really, really excited about gaming. And this is actually when mobile phones and games on mobile phones were just starting to be popular, but it's before the App Store, right? The App Store actually was announced when the iPhone came out in, I believe it was 2007. It came out, it really proliferated in 2008. And he started building games even before that. I think they started off with web games first, and then they started going into mobile clients to build out games. Now, between those gigs, uh, I believe he actually also worked for Virgin. That's right. Uh, the Virgin Group. And so he was going into this massive organization. He was in charge of growing out one of their business units. And he did spend a bunch of time there. He built additional relationships. 
And again, just remember, I mean, at this point, he had sold the company. He had some credibility because he already was seen as a leader through his work at Teach for America. And now he had worked with Richard Branson at Virgin. And he had established himself as a credible executive at this point. But now he was interested in doing his own thing yet again. And he decided to go into gaming. So by having this credibility, obviously, it made it much easier for him to raise some capital for this gaming company. And he started designing these games. He taught himself how to design games, and he hired engineers to actually execute on them. And every great idea we talked about on uh, Monday, this idea of stumbling into greatness, right? You don't always see what's at the end of the tunnel right away. But every great idea starts with an interesting insight that could help you differentiate yourself in the market. And the insight that Dan had at the time was that all games were essentially designed for hardcore gamers that, you know, just were obsessed with leveling up and the complexity of games and, and, and you know, basically being really engaged in these games. So pretty much everybody was designing games for hardcore gamers. And he said to himself... Let's look at what's happening to gaming right now. We're getting devices that are more and more being used for communication purposes. Why don't games exist right now that actually help you engage with people over these wireless devices? And one of the only games that he saw in the market that was helping you play with people outside of just, you know, playing with yourself individually on the game was Words with Friends. Yeah, most of the other games he observed were single-player games, puzzle games, games where you kind of have these perpetual levels and you keep on going going and you're getting badges and all that stuff. And he said, sure, that was interesting. People were addicted to that. But what could you do that might have a bigger network effect and might appeal to the broader public? And of course, he did see some movement from a game called Words with Friends. They became very popular and he decided, I'm going to make a game that actually helps people communicate. That's right. And, you know, people were, when he was designing the game, that ended up becoming Draw Something. They were exploring, potentially his engineers were pushing him to create different levels and all these things. And he's like, you know what? The average player, the average consumer does not care at all about levels. They just care about sharing this experience with their friends and having fun with it. And so they modeled Draw Something pretty much after Pictionary and just being able to play it with your friends in these like really quick engaging ways. And they stripped down all the bloated potential of things that you could have as features in this game and just made it something that's really easy to play with your friend in short bursts of time. And because it was one of the only games other than words with friends that let you play something with your friends, they ended up just growing massively, massively quickly. And they grew so quickly, they caught the attention of Zynga, who was the creator of Word with Friends, that ended up buying them for, I think it was like $200 million, which yeah. is crazy sum. It may have been $300 million. Cashed out. <laughs> Basically cashed out completely. So if you were building a gaming company right now and you, you had the talent to build a gaming company right now, how might you replicate that? Well, you might build for the AR or VR markets where there's not as many proved out games and it's easier to compete because you know they're not mainstream yet. And maybe you make it work for the mainstream market somehow. And again, he went about very intelligently when he was thinking about getting distribution for this particular games. So one of his marketing strategies was going to different colleges and universities. And one might think, well, how do I get a bunch of college students to play? Let me go to the biggest schools and get my game popular there. But 
he was insightful enough to understand that if you're going to go to a massive school, it's going to be hard to stand out from the noise. There's a ton of different students, like a school like NYU, for example. There's 100,000 different people that are involved with it between the students and the faculty. How do you find the people that actually care about it? Exactly. And that and almost everyone else, every other app or product or whatever, is trying to go into these universities and market themselves. So then you're also competing against everybody else that's marketing themselves to these students. So he decided to target small liberal arts schools. And he found that the game grew like wildfire within those schools because all it takes is to find a couple of students that really like the game in this small school, get in front of them, and then they'll tell all their friends. It's a really small school, so it's going to grow much faster. And so he started with these smaller niche communities as opposed to going to the bigger ones and grew, again, through word of mouth organically there. Yeah, so he calls it starting with smaller, unloved markets. What are the markets that your competitors are ignoring? You can go out there and make much more noise and stand out and use that as a testing ground before you expand elsewhere. So he did that with Draw Something, and now his next company, which is called Overtime, he's doing the same thing. He's taking a relatively niche market, a product, and making it broadly applicable to a broad variety of potential customers. So he had this insight that young people, the younger generation was really just not watching sports. And he thought, well, how is that the case? You know, sports is something that used to bring people together. And now people are not watching these large sporting events, fewer and fewer people. And what he did notice is that on Instagram, there were these high school athletes, high school basketball players that were starting to go viral on Instagram and they would have millions of followers on Instagram. And he had this insight that the future generation is going to basically consume sports through social media in these small, exciting snippets. And so what he did is he went out across the country, he scouted some of the best high school players in basketball and soccer and sports like that, and he basically created short-form videos of really cool tricks and, and things that these athletes were doing in their respective sports. And he only focused on marketing those videos, those branded videos that he created in, in his app Overtime, on Instagram. He didn't decide, oh, we're going to drive people to our separate website. He said, Instagram is where these athletes are. We're going to go and create videos with these athletes and we're going to create content that people are going to consume with these short form sports videos. So by making something that, you know, he basically was looking into the future saying, hey, young people are not watching sports and basically leaning into a medium that they already were used to consuming something in Instagram and short form videos, he created this entire new medium of sports consumption with his app Overtime. So it made it much more broadly applicable to to younger people. So he's competing on a few things here, right? I mean, he does not have necessarily his own distribution, although now he does because the app is growing, but he focused on really, really high quality content making sure that he's the one that identifies his talent. And now also they're building relationships with other talented athletes because they're being drawn to this as well. And so his sales team is going out and building relationships with these athletes. They, they might monetize through advertising campaigns. But the point is that's how he is creating a competitive advantage is through these relationships. And guess who's not paying attention to these hyper-influencer high school athletes that are growing like wildfire on social media networks? ESPN's not paying attention to them, right? SportsCenter is not paying attention to them. All these large networks that are just stuck in their ways and you know bringing you the Super Bowl and the NBA Finals and all of that, which the older generation still loves, they're not paying attention to it. And that's how he's making a name for himself. And that's how they might be acquired for a billion dollars by one of these big networks that want to access the younger demographic. 
The last thing that we want to talk about that really stood out to us from his presentation, and there were so many nuggets there that we, we couldn't possibly tell you everything that he said. It was incredibly inspirational. But one of the things was how he thinks about relationships. It's actually really, really intelligent. And the main thing is he sees it as a long game. More importantly, the way that he positions it is you can't think about it as a transactional thing. You can't always be looking for something from somebody else because then a, you're going to be disappointed, but B, they're going to see right through it. So any relationship that he builds, he thinks about adding value to that person and helping them out in any way that he can. And then in the future, somehow it might come back and help him. So one story that he told us is how he used to update all of these different people that he would meet or that he would want to meet through monthly updates yes. on his business. And actually, this is something that even at NYU, we tell all of our founders to do is keep track of all your supporters and send them supporter updates. So this is something you can do every month or once a quarter, whatever cadence makes sense to you. And in this case, it's kind of funny because I don't think this person was a supporter yet, but he added Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz of, of course, A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital fund. He added them to this monthly newsletter that he sent out. And for five years and 60 emails, he updated them every single month. Now, he didn't know them, but he wanted to keep them updated because who knows if they could somehow cross paths in the future. And uh, sure enough, after the success of OMG Pop and Draw Something, uh, he ended up getting an email back from Mark Andreessen that said, hey, I've been following you for five years. It's great to see your success. Now, I don't know what else came from that opportunity, but... Mark Andreessen was paying attention. And I'm not saying that you should add all these people to your cold email list and email them every single month. It might be annoying. But the importance of staying in somebody's ear is a big takeaway here. So if you do have supporters, whether they're investors, advisors, mentors, people that you meet along the way that might generally be excited for you, keep them in the loop because they might be able to help you in the future. And that's exactly how most acquisitions of companies happen. They don't really happen out of thin air. Sure, sometimes, you know, if you're doing really well, competitors just want to see you get out of the market and they want to basically acquire you. But most of the time, it's through relationships that had developed over time. Maybe you had a partnership with them. Maybe you just sent them updates or something and they see that your company is growing and at some point they decide to make an offer. So don't take for granted all the different relationships that you have and making sure you nurture them over time so that maybe someday one of you can be helpful to the other in ways that you can't even predict. So the main takeaways from this episode and just from that talk from Dan is, one, you can compete in various different ways. And the best way to compete against the big guys is to basically do what they're not doing or pay attention to the things where they're not paying attention. Two, you have to keep an eye where you think a market is going and sometimes you can take a niche product and make it broadly applicable to a, a broader market and sometimes that takes time but you can do that. And three, relationships are incredibly important and so don't think about them as something that's transactional. Think about them as a long-term game. Because you never know when your paths, goals, motivations, what have you, can overlap and actually give you an opportunity to engage with that person and work together. So, okay, so guys, we're going to wrap this up. I'm hallucinating right now. It's really hot. <laughs> it's so hot. Get hey, Google, AC on. Did you mean fridge? No, I didn't mean fridge. Oh, my God. All right, guys, listen. This is. I'm just going to go stick my head in the fridge. Thank you for listening to the show. We love you. We appreciate you. And we'll see you next week.